So uh, you look at the Christian life, the Christian life is often compared to a race. Uh, it's, there are a number of analogies people give for the Christian life, but the race is one of the more common ones. Uh, it's one that's actually found in the New Testament. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that he forgets what is behind him, and he strains forward towards the final goal uh, of becoming like Christ and knowing him and sharing in his resurrection. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to lay aside every uh, weight and every sin that entangles us and to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Um, and so this idea with the race is that all of us who are Christians are we're running this race, that we're striving forward to know Christ, to become like him, uh, and then to one day, like Paul said, to share in his resurrection, to stand in his presence, glorified for all eternity. All right, so carrying on this analogy, think about a race. What's the object of a race? What's the point? Yeah, to win, right? It's pretty obvious. Thanks, Steve. Uh, yeah, the object of a race is to win the race. Uh, whether it's 100-meter dash, a 5K, a 10K, half marathon, full marathon, uh, whether you're swimming or whether it's a NASCAR race, the object is to win the race. Right? And when you, when you run these races or, or do whatever you're doing to race, the, there are always people around you that you're racing against. And, and they're always your competitors. And so the object when you're racing is not only to win, but the object is to leave everyone else behind and you have very little regard for how they finish or if they finish at all. all right, you see, races are very individualistic in nature. Right? They're, all, they're all about their performance uh, and the accomplishment of the individual. You get to the end, you say, you know, I did it, I won. Ideally, you win, but... Uh, so again, these are races, they're individualistic in nature. Uh, somewhat recently, I had the opportunity to uh, compete in a race, uh, something called a, a Tough Mudder. I know Ryan Lamb knows what, what that is, he's the one who actually, he's the reason I ran it. Um, but if you don't know what a Tough Mudder is, it's a 10 to 12 mile race with various obstacles interspersed throughout the course. Uh, and so not only are you running almost a half marathon, but you're also doing different things like crawling through mud and under barbed wire, you're uh, jumping in ice water. At one point, there's a kind of a boxed in area where we had to crawl through uh, safe tear gas. It was safe, don't worry, Mom. <laughs> Uh, just all kinds of obstacles like that. At one point, we just walked through a creek for like 500 yards. Just stuff like that. At the end, you got electrocuted. There were electric wires hanging down, so you're running, jumping over stuff, and getting shocked simultaneously. Uh, so that's what a tough mudder is. Uh, there's a lot of mud involved, and the obstacles are tough, hence the name tough mudder. Uh, and so those obstacles set tough mudder apart from other races. If you're running a 100-meter dash, you're not getting electrocuted, I hope, or you're not running under barbed wire. If you're running a marathon, I mean, those are pretty tough, never done it, but, but you're not crawling through the mud. You're not trying to overcome uh, various obstacles. And so these obstacles set uh, a tough mudder apart from other races. Uh, but there's something else that sets a tough mudder apart from other races. Uh, so like I said before, all other races are very individualistic in nature. It's all about how you do as an individual and how you finish as an individual. And so an, an all other races say that you're out there 
by yourself. It's just about you. A tough mutter says that we're all in this together. In all other races, everybody else out there is your competitor. In a tough mutter, everybody else out there with you is your teammate. See, in every other race, the object is to leave everybody behind, right? Leave them in your dust. In a tough mutter, the object is just to finish the race. That's your goal. A tough mutter, the emphasis is on uh, the accomplishment of the team. It's just about everybody finishing the race. They don't keep time. You don't get to the finish line and get, you know, say, I finished in two and a half hours. Congratulations, you got first place. There's none of that. You finish, there's no time, there's no prize, there's nothing. You just get to the finish line, and that's your prize, along with everybody else who gets there as well. Uh, because Tough Mudder, uh, one of their... Uh, kind of one of their themes, one of the things, their mottos that they push, it, they take it from the military, is no man left behind. So again, the goal is for everybody to finish. It's about the collective performance of the team and about the team finishing. Uh, so we're going back to our analogy, the Christian life is indeed a race. All right, if we're in this room and, we are, and we're Christians, we are indeed running this race. Right? And we should be uh, striving forward to know Christ. We should be dropping everything that hinders uh, our advance in this race as we seek to know him and seek to become like Christ, ultimately sharing in his resurrection and his glorification. But here's the thing with the race. Uh, the Christian life is far more like a tough mutter than it is any other race. All right, so turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it, Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have one and you need one, uh, if you raise your hand, Pastor Dave or Dan in the back would be happy to bring you one. Uh, but Galatians chapter 5. So while you're turning there, I'll uh, just talk a little bit about Galatians chapter 5. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Galatians 5. In fact, I'm not even going to uh, read through it a lot, but if you just want to skim through it yourself, you can do that. Many of you are probably familiar with it already, or you've probably read it a number of times, because it's the pretty well-known fruit of the Spirit passage. All right, this is the, the passage where Paul talks about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, and he lists those out, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, self-control. Uh, but in a nutshell, Paul's whole uh, message, his whole idea in Galatians 5, especially verses 16 uh, through the end of chapter 5, uh, is that, first of all, we, when we are in Christ, we are Christians, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so we are alive by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and as a result, we, we live according to the Spirit. But even though we are alive in the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, we still have uh, kind of this option of walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. And so what Paul does is he, he takes these two things. He takes walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh, and he sets them right up next against each other, and he, he juxtaposes them and, and compares them. So he lists out the fruit of the flesh, and I'll let you read through those either now or at a later point in time. But he basically says, if you are living according to the flesh, if you're walking according to your flesh, you will exhibit these behaviors, and he lists them out. 
you will bear this fruit. A few verses later, he goes on to say, however, if you walk according to the spirit that is indwelling you right now, you will exhibit these behaviors. You'll bear this fruit. And he goes on to list those things out. So basically his point at the end of Galatians 5 is that as Christians, we either will walk according to our flesh or walk according to the Holy Spirit and will bear either the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, And this is the foundation of what he's going to talk about at the beginning of chapter 6. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. So with Galatians 5 in mind, let's look at uh, Galatians chapter 6 now, especially verses 1 and 2. Galatians 6, 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, so going back to the Tough Mudder I ran and this whole theme of, uh, of race, when I began that Tough Mudder, I had it in my head that I was going to be able to do the whole thing all by myself. That's just the way I am. I'm, I'm a competitor. Uh, I'm kind of stubborn and very independent. And so I get to the starting line, and I'm thinking, all right, here we go. I know all those obstacles are ahead of me, but I'm, I'm going to do this with no help. I'm not going to need anybody else doing this all by myself. I'm going to finish this. Here we go. And so I get to the starting line. The race starts. I start running. And for the first, I don't know, two or three miles, I'm just kind of coasting, Uh, I had trained pretty well up to this point, so I'm just, you know, running. Everything is good. First few obstacles aren't very hard. I just kind of breeze through those. And I'm thinking as I'm going, like, man, this is kind of easy. I can do this. There's no way I'm going to need anybody's help. If this is all it is, I got this. I don't need anybody else to do this. And then I got to an obstacle called the Mud Mile. Do you know this one, Ryan? The Mud Mile? He knows where I'm going with this then. So up to this point, the obstacles have been pretty easy. Then I get to this one obstacle. So I get there, and all I see ahead of me is just like a four-foot mound, about this tall. And it's about, I don't know, 20 feet across, just a four-foot mound. I can't really see what's behind it. And so I get there. I get up to this mound, and I jump up on it. And before I jump over, I look what's on the other side, probably wise. Uh, but I look down, and I just see a trench. I don't know, four feet across, just filled with water. And after that is another mound, then another trench, and then another mound, and then another trench. And then at the end is like an eight-foot mound. I mean, it was huge. And so it was just this series of four-foot mounds and trenches, one after another. Uh, And so I jumped down from that first mound, kind of slide into that first trench. I don't know how deep it is. I don't know what's in it. But I get into it, and it's about waist deep, about right here, and it's just filled with muddy water. The, the bottom of it is just nothing but pure, slippery mud. And at this point, I'm still thinking, I'm going to do this by myself. No one's going to help me. I got this. And so I, I, in the water, walk up to that next mound. Again, it's four feet tall from level ground. So from the bottom of the trench to the top of the mound, do the math, that's about seven feet. Uh, the side of the mound is just straight dirt, and it is almost completely vertical. And so I get there, and I think, all right, here we go. And I start trying to get up, and I got, I, there's nothing to hold on to. It's just a straight vertical wall of dirt. 
the same time my feet uh, are slipping in the mud, I can't get a grip. I can't hold on to anything with my hands. My clothes are soaked, I'm covered in mud, so I'm however many pounds heavier, and that's just pulling me down. And so for a minute or two, I just tried to get over this mountain by myself, thinking I could do it. And it was, it was futile. It was completely worthless. There was absolutely no way I was going to do that by myself. And it was about that time, finally stopped trying, just kind of looked at the mound ahead of me, and I looked around, and I saw all the other people who were a part of the race. And instead of trying to do it by themselves, like I was, they were helping each other. See, they, they understood what I didn't. They understood that they were not going to do this by themselves, so they had already humbled themselves and said, all right, let's do this together. All right, I got your back, you got my back, we're going to do this. And so then, I was, at that point in the race, only a couple miles in, I had to humble myself. I had to, not verbally, but just to myself and to the people around me, uh, admit that Landon is not strong enough to get through this tough mutter by himself, that I need the help of everyone else around me if I'm going to get over these obstacles. And so that's what I did. And even with the help of all those other people, I can tell you that obstacle was still ridiculous. <laughs> we had one guy squatted down in the mud right here, you know, his hands on your feet, keeping his face out of the water, trying to push up on you. One guy's trying to get over the mound. Another guy's on top, reaching his hand down, trying to pull him out. And it was still so hard. My arms were cut up. My legs were scraped. Uh, it was not easy, even with the help of all those other people. And so it took a long time. But we did it. Even the last mountain, that was eight feet tall. All right, so we did it. As a team, we got through it. As I was slowly completing this obstacle, and after I finished, there was really just one thing running through my head, though. Uh, and it was this. Man, this is a beautiful picture of what the Christian life should look like right here. And this is what Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I just kept thinking that over and over. You see, here's the thing. As we're living this Christian life, as we are running this race, so to speak, we're inevitably going to run into obstacles. Right? And this is why the Christian life is more like a tough mutter than it is any other race. The Christian life is not just a straight shot from the starting line to the finish line. You don't just become a Christian and then just kind of coast and breeze and jog uh, until you get to the finish line. You reach glory in heaven. The Christian life is messy. It's challenging. It's filled with obstacles. It's not just a straight shot. You see, and so often we're running this race in this Christian life, and just like I did in that one obstacle, that mud mile, we find ourselves just stuck waist deep in a trench of muddy water, right? Facing some insurmountable task ahead of us, wondering how on earth we're going to get through this. How can I finish the race when this is ahead of me? And just like I did for the first couple minutes of that, many of us in our Christian lives refuse to ask for help. We refuse to admit that we can't do this on our own. We stubbornly insist on doing it ourselves, thinking, no, I'm going to get the finish line myself. I'm going to finish this race alone so I can get the finish line and say I did it. And so we sit there, 
stuck in that muddy trench, trying to grab this wall, trying to get over this obstacle, making no progress in our Christian lives and begging God for deliverance. Saying, God, just please deliver me from this. Please give me freedom. Help me through this. Get me over it. But here's the thing. Just like that obstacle, we were never meant to run this race alone. We were never meant to clear these obstacles in our lives alone. Right? The, the creators of the Tough Mudder race knew that when they made that obstacle. It was never intended to be something that you completed alone. Right? And neither is this race, this Christian life. Right? Again, we sit there in this muddy trench just begging God to help us and to deliver us and to give us freedom so we can finish the race. And nothing happens when all around us are brothers and sisters in Christ just waiting to help us get through this and waiting to help us get to the finish line. Now look at Galatians chapter 6 now. Uh, look at verse 1 especially. All right, so Galatians 6.1. When Paul writes Galatians 6.1, he has what he just said in Galatians 5 in mind. All right, Galatians 5 is a foundation for what he says in Galatians 6.1. And so what does he say in Galatians 6.1? Brothers or brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in transgression, or your translation might say overcome by sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Right, look at the first part. If anyone is caught in transgression or if anyone is overcome by sin. All right, look, Paul knows, going back to Galatians 5, that even though we're indwelt by the Spirit, even though we're in Christ, we're still going to struggle with sin. There will still be times in our Christian lives when we bear the fruit of the flesh, when we fail to walk by the Spirit, and we will do those things that he talks about when he talks about the fruit of the flesh. Paul knows we're still going to struggle with sin. We see that elsewhere in Paul's writings, too. Look at Romans 7. He talks about it there as well. And so this is what he says in 6.1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, or if anyone is overcome by sin, knowing fully well that that is going to happen, that there will be times when Christians are overcome by sin when we are caught in transgression. And so what are we to do when a Christian bears the fruit of the flesh, when a Christian is overcome by sin and is caught in transgression? How do we handle that? And that's what he says at the end of verse 1. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And now when Paul says you who are spiritual, he's not like creating two distinctions of Christians. He's not talking about the spiritual Christian versus the unspiritual Christian. What he's simply saying is that you who are spiritual are those people who maybe are a little bit further along in this race, those people who are more consistently bearing the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying, that's what he's saying, you who are spiritual, you who are consistently bearing the fruit of the Spirit more and more. You people, what you should do is restore in the spirit of gentleness those Christians who are caught in transgression, those Christians who are overcome by sin. And so we as Christians have an obligation and a command when we see other Christians struggling uh, with sin or with some other burden for that matter to restore him. All right, this word restore that Paul uses here, uh, it, it's actually taken uh, from Greek medicine back in the day. And it was the word often used to talk about mending or setting a broken bone. 
So you think about a broken bone, and when you get that set and you restore it, you, you mend it, you make it right again, you set it back to where it should be. And Paul says that's what we are to do with one another. You who are spiritual, restore those who are caught in transgression. Right? Set them straight again. Restore them to the path of righteousness, to where they should be, to where they belong. And how is this to be done? As he says, in a spirit of gentleness. You think about setting a broken bone. You do it gently, but also firmly. I remember my senior year of high school in a football game, I dislocated one of my fingers. Uh, and so I went in the locker room and a doctor came in and he set my dislocated finger. And let me tell you, this thing was ugly when it was dislocated. Uh, and so he said it. And when he said it, he, he didn't just coddle it. He didn't just, you know, kind of rub it and think, oh, that's too bad that your finger's dislocated. No, he did something about it. And he had to be firm enough to make it right again. On the other hand, he didn't use a sledgehammer to set it. Does that make sense? He had to be firm enough to set it straight again and to restore it, but also gentle enough to not cause too much pain to restore it as gently as possible. And so he did. He restored it. And let me tell you, from that perspective, from my angle, it was still pretty painful, even though he was as gentle as he could be. Sometimes it's going to be painful when we're restoring people or when they're being restored. And so you think about this in our Christian lives. When we, you who are spiritual, encounter a fellow brother and sister in Christ who is caught in transgression, our restoration of them should be done in the same way firm enough to actually make progress, to actually restore them, but yet gentle enough as to call, so as to cause the least amount of pain possible. When you think about doing this gently, uh, one commentator said as I was preparing for this, a man who humbly knows his own unworthiness and susceptibility to temptation will deal meekly with a brother who sins. Listen, how foolish would it have been if when I was doing that mud mile, I get to the top of that one of those mounds, you know, I get to the top of it, I look back down behind me to that trench, I look at the people who are still struggling, and I just, I just scoff at them. I go, Psh, I can't believe you're still stuck there. I can't believe you. I can't believe you would actually get stuck in a muddy trench like that. I can't believe you. How foolish would that have been? Instead, I knew. I was just there myself. I know what it's like. I know how difficult it is. The only reasonable thing I could then do was from the top of that mound where I was, reach my hand back down and firmly but gently pull that next person out of that trench onto that mound. And that's what we're to do with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. When you know how susceptible you are to sin and to temptation, when you know how you struggle, that the only reasonable thing to do is to firmly yet gently pull other believers back up with you. Right? Not look down on them with arrogance. And so that's what Paul says to do in Galatians 6, 1. Galatians 6, 2, he also goes on to say, Brothers and sisters, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Now, as we're running this, this race, this, living this Christian life, there will be burdens. I don't need to tell you guys that. You guys all know that. There will be burdens of all kinds, whether that's an illness, sickness, um, a death of a loved one, I mean, struggling with sin, surgery, whatever it may be, there will be burdens. And as Paul says, we have an obligation to bear one another's burdens. And as we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ. And so what he means when he says the law of Christ, he's not talking about the Old Testament law in this case. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments or other uh, food laws or whatever from the Old Testament that uh, the Jewish people had to follow. When he's saying fulfill the law of Christ, he's talking about uh, the law of unconditional love, if you will. The law of, uh, think about Christ when he died on the cross. He bore our burden of sin and death in its fullness. When we deserved nothing, we deserved no part of that. Christ, in his love for us, bore our sin, bore that burden in its entirety. And so he says now, as brothers and sisters in Christ, bear one another's burdens. And as you do so, you will fulfill the law of Christ, that unconditional love of bearing burdens for somebody else. You know, when I look at our church with this, whenever I, whenever I write a sermon and I think about it, I always try to think uh, not just about the scripture specifically, but also try to think of our, our church and where we are uh, in, in fulfilling this and living this out, what I'm talking about, uh, and addressing it. And when I look at our church with this, a lot of times I think, we're pretty good at this. We're on the right track at the very least. Uh, you know, Rhonda does an amazing job of sending out prayer emails. She, she gathers those from people, sends those out all the time so that we're praying for one another. Many of you are amazing at sending Rhonda your prayer requests. Many of you are amazing at allowing the church to help you bear your burden. You're good at sharing that burden with Rhonda and then sharing that with the church. You know, someone's going to have surgery and ask for prayer. Somebody has a friend who is diagnosed with cancer, and so you ask for prayer. Somebody loses a loved one and asks for prayer. That happens all the time. I see that in our church. And so I think we're pretty good at sharing those burdens in our lives. We're pretty good at allowing others to bear those burdens with us. But let me ask us this. What about the burden of sin? How many of us are willing to share those burdens with our brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, think from our perspective. How many of you are willing to share how you are struggling with sin with another brother and sister in Christ in this church? How many of you are willing to ask for help if you're uh, stuck in that muddy trench in sin, trying to overcome it by yourself? On the flip side, how will we respond when a brother or sister in Christ comes to us and tells us that he or she is struggling with some particular sin? And maybe a really ugly one. How will we respond Right. Will we look down from the top of that mound and, and scoff at them, leaving them there in that muddy trench? Or will we firmly yet gently pull them out with us? 
you know, what, what will we do, church? I see us sharing our burdens of surgeries and uh, deaths and illnesses and things like that. And I love that. That's good. But how will we do in burying one another's sin and restoring one another when we're caught in transgression? I don't, I don't really know, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I see it with some people. So, but again, I'm not really sure. So I'm asking us, what will we do? How will we, we respond? You know, when we first came to Christ, think of that moment you first believed in Christ and trusted in him for your salvation. You had to humble yourself. You had to admit your brokenness before him. You had to admit your need before him. And you had to allow him to bear the burden of your sin. That all happened when we came to know Christ, every single one of us. But here's the thing. So many of us think that once we're saved, we're not supposed to be broken anymore. That we're not supposed to struggle with sin anymore. There, listen, there are some Christian circles that will tell you that once you're a Christian, you don't sin at all and you're perfect. And I just, I don't see it in Scripture. We're going to struggle with sin. Paul knows that. The whole New Testament says that and knows that. We will still struggle with sin once we are in Christ. We're still going to be broken. We're still going to struggle. And we will be broken and we will struggle with sin until that we, the day that we meet Jesus face to face. And so the Christian life must be one of constant confession uh, and of brokenness. We must constantly live in a state of brokenness before God and before one another. So we must constantly bow before Christ, our Savior, confessing our sinfulness to him uh, and asking for forgiveness and then praising him for bearing all of our sin on the cross. And not only must we confess our sin before God, but we must also confess our sin before one another. James 5.16 says to confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, one of my pleas this morning is this. Set aside your pride. Set aside your self-sufficiency and ask for help from a trusted brother and sister in Christ. Not saying you have to maybe send a, a prayer to Rhonda saying, how you're struggling with sin, or you confess that to a large group of people, but maybe, maybe just to one other uh, trusted brother, trusted sister that you know. As one commentator said, as I was preparing for this, uh, I read this line and it hit me pretty hard, because I will confess that I struggle with this. Now, I told you I didn't want to ask for help in that tough mutter. I don't want to ask for help in a lot of things. I try to do a lot of things on my own and independently and stubbornly. And so I'm saying this to myself as much as anybody. And this is why this one line from this commentary hit me so hard. He said, we all have burdens, and God does not intend for us to carry them by ourselves in isolation from our brothers and sisters. And this last line is what really got me. The myth of self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but rather a sign of pride. Listen, me, during that, trying to get over that mound from that trench, that was not a sign of me being brave or courageous or strong. It, it was pride. 
not willing to ask for help, not willing to humble myself and trying to bear that burden by myself, not willing to let my people around me, my brothers and sisters, bear that burden with me. And so again, my plea is this. Set aside your pride, humble yourself, and ask for help. We are all facing burdens of various sorts, be it sin or or be it something else. And God does not intend for us to bear this burden alone. In the past month or so, Pastor Rex preached a lot on being victorious in Christ about essentially claiming our position in Christ, claiming his victory over things, and then walking in that victory in our daily lives. And we should do that. And a lot of times, God will give us victory alone. But many times, the means by which God will give us victory in this life is through the church, through the body of Christ. And so we're begging for God for deliverance, asking him to help us, please help me over this burden, get me over this obstacle. I can't do it. When all around us are brothers and sisters in Christ, just waiting to help. And so church, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I'll ask worship team to come forward. Uh, and then let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand before you all as broken, needy people. And God, we know that once we're in, we are in Christ, that there's no condemnation. And so Lord, help us to rest in that. Lord, that once we know you, we are indeed secure in you. That there is no condemnation for us, that Christ bore all of our wrath for us. God, help us to remember and to know that we stand before you, holy and blameless and above reproach, because of Christ's work on the cross. But God, we also know that we still struggle with sin in our lives. We still know that there are times we are caught in transgression. We know there are times we are overcome by sin. God, I just pray this morning that you would humble each and every one of us to confess that sin to one another, that we may be healed. God, help us to set aside our pride and our self-sufficiency and simply ask for help, Lord. God, we have so many burdens in our lives, be it sin or something else. You have not intended us to carry these burdens alone. God, all around us are brothers and sisters just waiting to help us. And so, Lord, let this church be one that will confess its burdens to one another and bear these burdens with one another. Lord, as we do that, we know that your glory will shine through us. We know that the outside world will see this. This is this community of people that is humbly confessing their need and their brokenness before one another and then bearing that load and that sin together. Father, humble us this morning before you and before one another. And again, Lord, we just thank you for your son for bearing the entire burden of our sin on the cross. So Lord, we sing to you now. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Christ's name I pray all these things.
Amen.